But first, a little disclaimer. We are prefacing a lot of the appeal of this podcast on the fact that we're prosecutors. However, we need you to understand we are not doing this podcast in our professional capacity as prosecutors. We're doing this as people after hours on our own time with our own equipment. Now, we know a lot about the law by virtue of what we do, uh, but we're also just interested in true crime. So our opinions and commentary in this podcast are not the opinions of our office or our employer. They are not our professional opinions, and nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice or anything other than three friends blowing off some steam together. So with that in mind, don't try this at home. You know what it is. This is Joe. And Cheryl. And I'm Ray. And this is No True Bill. Oh, I know it has been a while, but I'm glad that you're back. Today, Raymond is going to tell us a story. He's going to start to tell us a story. It's going to take a minute. But it's going to be great, and I hope you enjoy it. This is part one of the Yogurt Shop Murders. Cheryl. Yeah. Ray say he's ready to tell us a story today. And you know I always love it when Ray tells a story. You do. I know you've been so excited about this. I love it when anyone but me tells a story. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's a shame. The viewers don't like it as much. They're no, listeners. And, I mean, and they, rightfully so. They are abundantly clear. Cheryl's Cheryl's storyteller extraordinaire. Well, they, they recognize talent. That's fair. Mm-hmm. And then me and Ray just kind of yeah hang out in the background over here. But, I always yeah. enjoy your stories. We're the the backbenchers. Yeah, but it's uh, I'm ex- I'm excited about this too, and I'm also excited because of how excited Ray has gotten recently about this. He seemed to be. I just wanted to be over. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I understand that feeling. This I I was explaining to Cheryl before we came in here that uh, well, so okay, it's a. 30 year old case Mm -hmm. that has been on and off again investigated continuously but the the majority of those 30 years this case has been under active investigation and so a little bit of material a little bit (laughs) and um yeah i i picked a hell of a first case when i walked into books a million that day (laughs) um but it, it it's it's an it's a very complex case in some respects Got a lot of different moving parts, things that I think as prosecutors, we're probably going to find interesting and want to maybe drill down on a little bit just for, you know, general topics of discussion. It's an extremely frustrating case, especially for us. And um, it's often just really heartbreaking. Hmm. But, great. Right. Yeah. Super uplifting, positive, great story. The only As the last few. Have oh, been. the last right. few have been in this vein. I think it's what the people like, though, which I need therapy. Right. Well, and the only the only sort of saving grace is that there might and we'll, we won't get in, into that today, but uh, in future episodes on this case, because this one definitely will be a multi-parter. There is potentially light at the end of the tunnel, um, whether that'll yield a suspect that can actually be prosecuted or not. Not sure, but um, there might be. Away. I mean, and you've described to us in the amount of material and preparation you've put into this, um, you've referred to it perhaps as your darling routine. I mean, there's going to be a multi-parter here. Oh, yeah. Deep diving. Well, I, so I have 10 pages of a single spaced outline here Woo-hoo. that I was explaining to Cheryl before we started. I think we'll cover approximately the first 24 hours. 
of a 30 year investigation. <laughs> hey, they say the first 48 are the most important. That's true. So, you know, you know, that, they, that's they, where A&E says it. Time. Tom yeah. Segura says it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everyone so, who matters. That's right. It. They all they all know. So, yeah, it's 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 going to be detailed. Well, and, and aside from the detailed nature of your research and presentation, uh, my understanding is the other similarity is the state of Texas. Am I right? That is true. All right. Take it away, Ray. Tell us what you got. So <clears throat> uh, I guess I'll start with my sources. I found this case, as I said, by aimlessly wandering through the true crime section at Books A Million because we decided uh, that we wanted to do a true crime podcast. And I... So you've been on this for a bit since we since we decided to do this. Yeah, oh, yeah. This was the first one that ever came into my hands. I was like, oh, my God, this is too much. Um, but I found a book by a woman named Bever Beverly Lowry, not to be confused with Mike, Mike Lowry. Lowry. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote a book called Who Killed These Girls? The Unsolved <laughs> Murders That Rocked a Texas Town. Um, interesting little side note about her. And it's part of she she talks about maybe maybe that was part of the reason she was motivated to delve so deeply into this case is that in 1984, her one of, I don't know if it was her only one or one of multiple, but one of her sons was uh, killed by a hit and run driver and that was never solved. Oh. Ah. So the the languishing pain and no answers, no closure, she's all too familiar with. And I think she just kind of invested in this case. Um, Turning that negative into positive. Yeah. Perhaps. I don't know. What to say. <laughs> and um, there have been all kinds of other people i mean the, the, who killed these girls is kind of the seminal work but lots and lots of podcasts and media coverage since literally before the crime happened well not before the crime happened but before law enforcement was involved in earnest and i'll explain why in a moment um <laughs> we just looked at each other like <laughs> yeah what the hell are you talking about, talk about yeah though? wait wait for it um so I guess I, I there have been a lot of presentations of this case and the way they tell the story, you know, it sort of makes sense. I've complained a lot about this book. I feel like in, in some respects, it's kind of told in a disjointed manner. And I think uh, to some degree, maybe the story being told by a prosecutor will make it make more linear sense. You know, we're can, we're, we're skilled in I like stories. narrative in front mm -hmm. of a jury and making it make sense. Yes. So um, before I guess I get into the details. This one is hard on the trigger warnings. Okay. Um, the actual, what happened to these girls is terrible. Um, and, and it is pretty detail oriented at points and it's rough. Mm. Um, but so with all that, the date is Friday, December 6th, 1991. The location, Austin, Texas, uh, Travis County, it is because I like biographies. I like geography. I, I delved into this a little bit. Um, Austin is in central Texas. It is approximately 80 miles from San Antonio. It's about uh, 165 miles, three hour drive from Houston. It's about three hours from Dallas. It's uh, 200 miles. There's like this big triangle. And Austin is just northeast of San Antonio in between San Antonio and Dallas. And Did you do that research just to troll me about Wenatchee? A little because bit. it worked. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Um, obviously, we all know that Austin is the state capital. 
And at least back in the 90s, I've heard it referred to at the time as kind of a little big town. It was a decent sized town for sure, but it hasn't it hadn't yet experienced the sort of popularity and population boom that it has more recently. Back then, the estimates were 450 to 600,000 people. Now it's around about 2 million. Mm. Um, obviously, it's the home of the University of Texas. Hook em. It That's right. Um, it was, and still is, uh, a kind of artsy, liberal college town. That's right. <laughs> hit, him, hit him with that horn sound, WVU. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah, all right. We're of, still friends. <laughs> kind of viewed, you know, it's, it's been viewed for a long time as an artsy, liberal college town. Um, and back in the 90s in particular, it, kids were on the street all the time. It was um, a place where, you know, you in all of the news accounts where you'd hear, you know, contemporaneous reporting from victims, families, people in the community, law enforcement, everybody, everybody just said this was something we did not expect here. Um, the actual location of the crime is the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop or ICBY. Ah. In, remember those? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. In uh, <clears throat> Northwest Austin, it was in the Hillside Center Strip Mall, located at 2949 West Anderson Lane. Um, well, we'll get to that later. It's just off the Mopac, Mopac Expressway, which is a 25 or so mile long highway that runs north and south along the western side of Austin. So it's basically just a couple blocks, maybe not even a couple blocks from a major interstate mm -hmm. through Austin. Um, this uh, Hillside Center strip mall is approximately a big ass city block long. <laughs> it has it's approximately. Yeah. It has a parking lot of about 200 spaces. Um, each business in this strip mall has about five spaces dedicated to it. Each each commercial establishment. I dig it. Um it's basically your common mixed retail shopping center. It's got the the ICBY. It had a party store, a pizza shop, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Probably a karate dojo. In Pro there probably you know yes. I mean? Cobra Kai yeah. was there, um, and so the ICBY in particular was kind of known as a gathering place for families, couples, teens, um, even. At the time, back in the roundabout in the 90s there, uh, the then governor, Ann Richardson, would pop in at, to this location sometimes. Huh. Um, Everybody likes yogurt. Right. And so it was basically a safe store in a safe neighborhood in a safe town. And um, nobody really thought it was weird that the parent company of ICBY, Bryce Foods, which was out of Dallas... Um, routinely employed and you know a lot of ice cream places still do employed high school kids sure um so when the two girls who were working that night were 17 nobody thought it was weird um and actually this particular shopping center was so safe there was some uh it didn't specify which establishment but apparently there was an instance kind of contemporaneous with this where one of the stores had a defective lock on one of its exterior doors, just didn't fix it. <laughs> like, ah, which is like, no. it looks locked. That's good. Enough. Yeah, right. Like, we'll we'll dupe these dummies. Nobody's gonna break in. It's cool. <clears throat> and then another area of interest, uh, it'll it'll rear its head later, is the nearby North Cross Mall. 
Uh, it opened up in the 70s and back in the 90s still it was super dope mm. uh, especially for teens now it's apparently all but you know run down abandoned it's it's a dump but back then it was super cool it had a lot of interesting stores uh, i think it had a six theater movie theater um dope food court and it had in it an ice rink which was apparently the only ice rink within approximately a 200 mile radius yeah you're talking <clears throat> texas ice yeah rink. okay actually uh like it was so popular back when it opened and it was supposed to be this you know beaming example of of commercial prosperity and so forth that uh lady bird johnson showed up ah, um they named a lake after her yeah it had uh it had a scoops ahoy the russians were penetrating the <laughs> upside down beneath it it was star court <laughs> but with an ice rink even better <laughs> that's right <clears throat> so now to december 6 1991 the first call is dispatched at approximately 11.48 p.m. when a patrol unit uh, with the Austin Police Department, a guy by the name of Troy Gray, was driving DUI patrol. He notices smoke billowing from the area of the shopping center. He drives in that direction and actually pulls into the alleyway behind all of the stores and sees flames and smoke and so forth shooting out of the two back doors of this establishment. I don't think from the backside he was able to tell what it was. Um, I'll skip that detail. We'll come back to that one. That one gets interesting later. Um, so smoke super thick from the front side of the shopping center looking into the store. Uh, it's so thick that you can't even see the interior. Um, it's so, so black. Um, it started to roll out of adjacent stores. It was so thick. Um, and the initial belief was that it was, I mean, I don't know why people would think this, but I guess it, apparently the initial belief was no foul play, probably some kind of kitchen fire, despite well, the you, fact that it's a yogurt shop. Yogurt shop. <clears throat> Everything's cold. Right. You got French fries with the yogurt at the yogurt shop? You got Not, fry no, or something? I don't think so. I mean, I, maybe <clears throat> maybe they thought there was an oven to like bake cheesecake or something. Uh, I don't know. But apparently, yeah, people are like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's a food place. Right. Ovens, fires, whatever. Well, and even machinery <clears throat> that keeps things cold can overheat. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Electrical fire, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you ever touch the back of a refrigerator? It's hot. Yeah, those coils do get spicy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Uh, Show do. <laughs> Uh, Austin Fire Department responds with a ladder company, an engine company, and EMS personnel. Two, I guess, sort of specialist, almost like breacher guys mm. uh, with AFD, Rene Garza and David DeVoe, are the first firefighters to attempt entry. entry. Um, they get to the front door and the door is locked. They note that the uh, key, they're, well, they're, the front door is locked and that there's a key in it. Um, but so from they, the outside or inside inside mm. and so they pop the lock and they go in the smoke is so thick they can't see shit so they're on hands and knees crawling around to the rear of the store which would appear to be based on just the the heat and smoke and so forth the epicenter of the fire that's where it's coming from yeah okay. um, <clears throat> let's see they crawl around to the back room. That's where the fire is going down, or, you know, is, is raging, and they start to try to knock it down. Um, they aren't, I guess they don't have like radio comms in their 
gas Fire helmet things. Thing. Yes, yeah, <clears throat> so they have to yell if they want to communicate. It's all like hand signals or Ooh. like actually yelling. Um, and, Seems primitive. Right. And I think for most common things, they had hand signals. And at this point, like I said, nobody is anticipating anything is a foul. It's just a fire. A fire, right. And and you said it was like 23, 40, like almost almost midnight when this yeah, went down. Yeah, it was down. like so 10, 10 to midnight. This thing should have been closed for probably a couple hours by now. There yes. shouldn't, in theory, you wouldn't think anyone's even in there. Right, right. So nobody's really sketched out by this. They're just like, okay, well, it's a fire. Uh, except then they are they're crawling and devoe i believe notices it first he hits garza on the shoulder and screams at him is that a foot Mm. um they backed up slightly when that happens i don't know if it's like a holy shit kind of backup sort of thing but they back up slightly and that's when they hit another body um and at that point they know this ain't no routine fire they just discovered two new girls oh they were naked yes okay um so then garza i guess goes past the bodies toward the 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 rear of this so the bodies are found in this rear break room or or shop area i think there's a couple there's a model i've seen of uh, recreation of the store and there's some like there's a uh, i think an employees only bathroom back Mm -hmm. there there's an office but this is kind of like the shop area behind the counter that's cordoned off you can't see it from the lobby and toward the rear of that there are the doors that lead to the alley and i guess garza goes back there with the intention of helping to ventilate the store further um i don't know open those doors or whatever yeah i don't know if he was going to open the doors further or if he was going to fucking take his axe and rip a hole in the wall like i don't know um but that's when he noticed well there's no stove here there's (laughs) there's no cooking equipment whatsoever yeah um so the idea that Oh, maybe this was a gas leak and some kind of an associated explosion or whatever that went out of the out of the window. And he also noted that the back door was already slightly ajar. Um, So at that time, he sees the lower half of yet another girl. And he has been interviewed many times. He's testified in some of the trials that have come up in this case. And he routinely mentions that he is uh, haunted by the feet. He just can't get the feet out of his mind. Mm. Um, so I guess they, you know, retreat to the parking lot. They re- uh, relay their <clears throat> what their findings are to the battalion chief who's on scene. Um, and at this point, three other patrol officers are there on scene. They hear about, oh, shit, there's bodies in there. They go in. They confirm, yes, there are bodies. And that's when they radio for homicide. So... And, and this is what I'm talking about with the media being involved before this case even really starts. So the only in, in Austin, Texas, this is another indicator of how safe people felt this town was. The only homicide detective working in a town of round about half a million people on a Friday night was Sergeant John Jones. The, the, only. the only homicide detective working that night, like on call, whatever. He's the only one. Or I guess out on patrol in case anything pops up you're the guy yeah i guess if you need reinforcements we'll, we'll send people in but on the road you're the only one for a half a million person community <laughs> and at that point in time sergeant jones has been uh on the force with austin pd for about 21 years and he had been a homicide cop for years i don't know how long he'd been in homicide because usually when he's asked about 
his tenure, he didn't measure it so much in time as he did in bodies. Oh, word. Oh. Um, he said <clears throat> that this would- How long you been in homicide? 372. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that was pretty much it. Uh, about, round about, at this point in time, around about 150 bodies. Okay. And these would be his last four. Yeah. Um, but so the media involvement thing that I was mentioning is that night, by happenstance, he had a film crew, a cameraman and a reporter from KTBC TV, the Austin CBS affiliate, riding with him. He had video or like ride along. Yeah, it he, was like the press, press ride along. Yeah, CBS with a camera rolling were in the cruiser with him when the it's radio the starts popping off. Yeah, basically it's yeah. cops <laughs> and... Um, he is on scene with them in tow, you know, less than five minutes later. Wow. And you hear there's, I mean, there's, there's actual video, you know, uh, that, it, that has been released to the media and so forth. Um, or I guess really by the media in this case, um, of, of all this going down. And basically, uh, interestingly, the film crew was bitching about how boring Austin was. And they were like, they were like, man, nothing happens in this town. They were out, I guess, doing, I don't know if it was some sort of statewide analysis of criminal activity or whatever, but they were in Austin that night and they're like, man, this town sucks. Nothing interesting ever happens here. This is dumb. And then one of them was like, well, but I mean, we're going to Houston tomorrow and shit pops off in Houston. So it'll be cool. And then like not long after that, the art of the jinx, right? There it is. Um, so, um, the initial dispatch is... Have they looked into the film crew as possible suspects? <laughs> right. <clears throat> That's right. They were so bored, they created the crime. <laughs> That's right. They killed these girls. Who killed these girls? CBS. Um, <laughs> so they get, news. they get the dispatch of... Initial dispatch of two fatalities, suspected arson, suspected homicide. Looks like there might be gunshot wounds at the ICBY on West Anderson. He immediately activates lights and sirens. He's en route. Then, while he's in transit, uh, dispatch advises that's another body. And then another patrol unit who's actually at the shop radios him direct and says, Jonesy, make that four. Mm. And all this is on video. I mean, you can you can Google it. Bang, please, man. I was going to say, are we sponsored by Bang? <laughs> what flavor we got today, Ray? We got Purple Haze. Purple Haze. Yeah, getting that Jimi Hendrix going. Um, so... He arrives fairly soon thereafter, and he is met by a whole complement of first responders. Fires there, EMS is there, patrol units have heard what's going down. I mean, this is going over the radio, and right. people, like I said, shit like this don't happen here. And even in the law enforcement first responder community, people are like, you know, bugs They're on, coming on lights at night. Like, yeah. they want to see, they, they got to be there. Um <clears throat> And the estimates were that by the time he gets there, there are approximately 50 people, five on people scene. on scene from the various entities that might be interested in such a thing. Um, and I have to believe based on what I understand developed thereafter, the numbers just kept going up. Well, and I don't know, I'm assuming you're probably going to get there already, but if you're saying there was a fire... The firefighters are in there. They're putting the fire down, hitting water with it. And now by the time 
your detective shows up on scene. You've already got 50 first responders there. I feel like we might end up with a compromised crime scene. You might be right. <laughs> um, and well, yeah, you're, you are right. Mm. And some of the folks who are there and who are involved, I bet one is the killer. Maybe, maybe we don't know. I'm sorry. Um, but just, one, was my some gut. of the people who are there just, you know, rather than maybe trampling on trace evidence or whatever, they actively make things worse. <laughs> um, which oh, is, this dear. is where some of the frustration starts to come in, yeah. especially from our prosecutorial perspective. So um, he walks in the shop by this point, like you said, uh, AFD has knocked down the fire. Um, he makes his way back to what was clearly the epicenter and there's water everywhere as you would expect. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like to the point that, they thought, I think he thought, and he might've relayed this to either Lowry or in another interview, but to the, there was so much water in this back room that they thought a pipe might've burst or, or even melted during the fire. There were certain areas where the water was an inch deep. Mm. Um, lots of blood was on the floor, soot, ceiling tile, insulation, exploded cans of syrups and toppings. There was an aluminum ladder um the top two rungs just melted off just gone um there was a stainless steel shelf melted to the point that the different shelves looked like metal hammocks they had swooped down they just the whole thing had started to melt damn um and the bodies because of the water and the heat they're they're smoldering and smoking and it's utter destruction joan i was, was going to ask you about that the actual conditions of the bodies where they all burnt up pretty bad oh we're going to get to that okay so <clears throat> jones described it as later he described it as quote wholesale carnage Oof. um and so what they found this is a little bit of uh jumping ahead but what they what they learned what they found on the scene and then what they learned thereafter they were able to piece together in part that they found 13-year-old Amy Ayers. She had suffered a non-fatal gunshot wound to the head from a 22, and they concluded that that was uh, non-fatal because it broke the skull, but apparently the round did not penetrate the brain. Hmm. But then she was shot a second time in the head with a 380. That round went through the brain, uh, entering from the rear left side of her head and exited through the front right cheek at the jawline Mm -hmm. and that killed her she was the only one who had an exit wound um you said that was with a so the first shot was a 22 and the second shot was a 380 yes interesting they also noted that she had a bruise on the inside of her lip that they thought might have indicated she was struck before shot or maybe as part of being shot she fell and that's what inflicted the injury she also had some kind of what was described as quote sock like uh, i have to assume cotton ligature ligature around her neck and they concluded that she was strangled at some point but still alive when she was shot um and she was located some distance away from the other three on her stomach with a knotted t-shirt under her body so the theory i think was that she's strangled but not to the point of killing her. Then she's shot. She tries to crawl away and is shot again, which is what kills her. Um, And maybe 
with the bruise, she might have been struck in the face before she was shot fatally. <clears throat> she was found, Amy, the farthest from the fire's epicenter, and she had raw, blistered skin over about 30% of her body, but wasn't charred. She was the only one of the four who had any area of her body that wasn't burnt. Wow. Then, she was the one closest to the, the main door. I can't recall if she was the one closest to the rear door or the one closest to the door that would lead you back near the, the mm -hmm. entryway that would lead you back into the um, lobby. I'll, I'll look at that and get you the answer. I know that there's actually in the book, there's somebody on scene took like precise measurements, this many inches from wall and so forth, you sure. know, documenting the scene. And like I said, that diagram exists and uh, it's like an aerial view. And I think they even have the body superimposed Post on it. And I can, I can figure that out. <clears throat> but uh, then they find 17-year-old um, Eliza Thomas. She's found stacked on top of 15-year-old Sarah Harbison, um, and then nearby, just right next to this pile of the two girls, is 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, Sarah's sister. Oh. Um, investigators believed that Jennifer was on top of the pile and that either Amy knocked her over mm -hmm. Or somehow amid the fire, Garza and DeVoe bumping into shit, the you know introduction of high pressure fire hoses right. and so forth, that Eliza just kind of toppled off. Um, now, the three that were in this general pile, they suffered substantial burns. They were able to determine that all three were shot in the back of the head with a 22. Jennifer... The 17-year-old, uh, she had a ligature around her neck, had her hands um, behind her as if she'd been bound, but I don't think, I, I've got to read further down, but I don't think she actually did have uh, like bindings, bindings on, on yet. Yeah. <clears throat> the ligature around her neck might have been a gag. She slipped before she was shot because there wasn't actual evidence of strangulation. So she had something around her neck, but it wasn't, you know, no trauma to the neck. Mm -hmm. um, they did not find bindings on her wrists. They thought that the bindings might have burned in the fire because she was burned the worst of the four. Um, they also found her shoes along the wall near the rear doors. So in some respects, it seems, and you'll, you'll hear about some more of that with these other girls, but it seems as though the culprit or culprits made these girls strip. And then it would seem, I've not seen the crime scene photos, but it sounds almost like they took their clothes and neatly organized it along the door, along the wall. Um, or maybe they forced the girls to do it. I don't know, but either way, there's sure. like this element of organization to it, which is strange to me. Um, <clears throat> Eliza, 17 year old Eliza Thomas, she's naked. Her hands are bound behind her back with a bra. She was gagged. Uh, she was burned so badly she was bald and faceless. Oof. Investigators also found her white Reeboks placed along the wall near Eliza's uh, black shoes by the uh, back door there. And then Sarah, the 15-year-old um, Sarah Harbison, mm -hmm. she's found just around about three feet away from her sister Jennifer, and she's lying, so she's the one they think toppled off. Mm -hmm. She's lying naked on her back. Her hand, hands were bound behind her back with a pair of panties. 
She's also gagged. She has a gold necklace with a cross medallion on it that's mm-hmm. like melted onto her. Oof. Um, but her Mickey Mouse watch, her wallet, and her boyfriend's class ring were all removed and put in a pile. Boyfriend's boyfriend's class ring was a gold ring with a green stone, initials on one side, and a tractor on the other. So we we country. Mm. Um, Cheryl, <laughs> party foul. Um, we have rules for this. <clears throat> I apologize. <laughs> Officers also found a metal scoop on the ground between her legs. Um, the forensic pathologist would later find abrasions to Sarah's vagina that were at least consistent with being assaulted by the scoop handle. Like the, like an ice cream scoop? Yes. Oh, goodness. Yeah, they said they weren't sure if it was an ice scoop, an ice scoop, an ice cream scoop, but yeah, some handled scoop. Um, scoop end facing vagina, I okay. guess. And they found abrasions uh, consistent with her being sexually assaulted. They noted before they got to the back room and found the girls that there was a rag on the counter near the register that was crumpled up sort of as if someone were using it to wipe the uh, the, the stainless steel counter clean mm-hmm. and then like just kind of abruptly took their hand up. Like it wasn't folded nice and neatly. It was it was it looked as though it was being used. Also, the vanilla yogurt dispenser was open with a stool beside it, mm-hmm. uh, which people which I think the manager will talk about in a minute and, and investigators just generally based on the layout of things. They thought that it meant one of the girls was cleaning out this dispenser when whatever happened happened and mm-hmm. they were you know rudely um stopped so then they also note that the register is open the till has been removed and it's missing about 540 bucks uh they do find the till on the ground near amy's body in the back room and the register tape shows a no sale transaction at 11 thir- i'm sorry at 1103 which would indicate that that's when the register was last opened and the shop the hours to the shop. Well, that's the shop closed at 11 and, um, so yeah. And the, and the fires notice as, as we indicated, the, the first call I think comes out at, at 1148. So we got roundabout. Well, okay. So I, and I guess I've omitted that detail here, but I, the shop closed at 11. The procedure was that at 10 o'clock, I'm sorry, at 10.50, the 10 minutes till, the girls were to turn the open sign off and from the inside, lock the front door mm-hmm. so nobody else could come in. And the, even if patrons were in there, and then I guess maybe they'd have to unlock it to let the patrons out right. or whatever. But yeah, 10 Which minutes- Which would explain why there's a key in the door on the front end. That would be a thing <clears> that you do. Yes. Um. So basically from- you know, 10 50, 11 o'clock to eleven fifty, we don't know what happened. Um and it looked yeah, it looks as though the girls were cleaning up the shop uh, as usual when they're abruptly stopped. They might have been op- ordered to open the register and then taken to the back storage area. What exactly transpired, we don't know. Um and as I indicated, this this shop, the shopping center was a large city block had a lot of different stores but the icby as i said closed at 11 
there was a grocery store in there, kind of like a Whole Foods sort of thing before mm-hmm. Whole Foods. That closed at nine. And there was a pizza shop down the way that closed at 10. So at that time, it's the only game in town. Right. No witnesses. The shopping center is basically empty, except for anyone who might have been there. But, you know, at 1050 at a place that closes at 11, people aren't showing up. I'm not trying to place this is this has no blame. I'm not not doing that. Why is your yogurt shop open until 11 p.m.? If the pizza joint is closed. That's a good point. If well, the pizza joint is closed, I think you got no business being open later than the pizza. Well, as well, far after you have a pizza, maybe you want some dessert. That is true. That's a fair point. I reckon. But yeah, to to as far as blaming the uh, the store, you would not be the only one. <laughs> there there was a civil suit. You can believe. Um, but uh, yeah, so they they closed at eleven, and the other all the other businesses at the latest closed an hour before. Right. Um, so, oh, my man. Mike Jones, it's actually John Jones, but I just can't help calling him that. (laughs) Do it. He shows up and just like Rick Rolfs and uh, he shows up and says, this is too much for one dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I got four bodies. I got a terrible fire. It got the whole scene is. Yeah, been washed away by the fire department. I need help. Help, motherfucker. And yeah, so he needs help. And he decides I'm gonna call my LT, see if he will bless reinforcements. Mm -hmm. And he do. Um, he says, I think he indicates basically, you know, I don't know if somebody prompted, if, if the LT suggested it or if he asked for it specifically, but the dude who shows up approximately 20 minutes later is a dude by the name of Sergeant Mike Huckabee. I don't, it's spelled B-A-Y. Huckabay. Uh, Huckabay. Some people say it that way, but I'm like, it's Huckabee. I ain't saying Huckabay. Um, like, oh, oh, bay, Huckabay put it a lot of people called him that what he went huck. by was huck. Huck. Oh, so yeah. i mean what a great nickname <clears throat> come on hook yeah right so and and it's gonna be okay huck's here yeah <laughs> right and so um jones and huck had had worked together before so when he shows up he's like oh my man's is here yes we got we i feel much better now i mean i laugh but i would shit my pants oh yeah I- <laughs> I mean, and you got to figure, right? Like, this is the one thing that has always struck me as kind of crazy about this case is like, and we'll get to later to how hard this case rocked the town. But you show up on scene to this this horrific fire homicide, and which is going to be a handful as is. You got a camera crew right. over your shoulder. Up in your business. And he was oh. actually mic'd up. Oh, and if if that if just sounds awful, he has a mic pack on and mercifully when he goes into the shop to start to actually work the case and do his job, the, the batteries and the mic pack are dead. But otherwise, anything he would have said, any reactions, holy fucks, whatever, like they mm-hmm. would have caught that and that would have been broadcast. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, they they weren't live. It wasn't right. cops. Right. But I'm sure that that was aired maybe the next day on on the local news i'm already feeling bad for mike jones yeah dude um so so huck rolls up and uh huck says look i went to vietnam i saw some real fucked up stuff in vietnam and i thought i'd never see anything like that again i was wrong Uh, this was just as bad golly um and so Huck and Jones decide, all right, well, we got a we got a beast in front of us. We got to figure out how we're going to d- divide labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the decision is made that 
Huckabee is going to be the dude who is primarily, he's the people person. Okay. He's going to be the dude who's going to do. With a name like Huck. Right. Shucks, Huck. Let me tell you what happened. <laughs> yeah. So he he's doing interviews. He's going to do the interrogations. He's going to do the, the person to person side of it. And Jones is, he's a little bit more, I don't know, abrasive. Some people said he had a big ego, but it was undeniable that he was incredibly dedicated and pretty well organized. So he was going to be kind of the administrative, I don't know, details guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they also, these two guys, I think they were so struck by what they were seeing that they decided, look, we could, you know, cultivate enough evidence to establish PC and, and collar somebody and call it a wrap. But this shit is horrific and whoever did this needs to pay and we're not going to get warrants until we're confident that we can prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. That's when we're going to ask for warrants. You mean there's no requirement to automatically charge someone as soon as you get probable cause? That is a thing, Joe. That is that you do not have to do that. (laughs) Cool. Mm -hmm. That's a cool thing. Everybody should know. If you don't know, now you know. That's right. Probable cause. Um. And so you also have to understand, too, like if you want to feel bad for Jones, keep feeling bad for him, because you have to understand that back in the 90s and 91, Mm. um, Austin PD did not have dedicated CSI units. Um, That just wasn't a thing like. So Mike Jones is the one collecting this evidence and photographing this. Well, it would have fallen upon him, but he says, holy shit, there's no way that one man can undertake all this. So I'm going to call and I don't really understand in the uh, sort of organizational chart of Texas law enforcement where they fall in because they're not. I mean, I know we call them sometimes the Department of Public Safety and Statute, but Mm -hmm. he calls the Texas Department of Public Safety, which does have a CSI unit. I don't know if they're like, I mean, they're not the state police. They're, they're the DPS. Is that if they're not the state police? I mean, is it, did he call Walker, Texas Ranger? They didn't say they're, Are Rangers they not the Rangers. Either. I don't understand where they fit in. You Maybe. got so excited. I did. I mean, if you're saying they're Texas state police, but they're not state police. Well, I'm saying, I'm saying they're, we call, right. We call our division of public state. Right. Yeah. But public at state. no point did I ever see these guys referenced as state police. So I don't know, I, I maybe should have done a little bit more homework on, like I said, where they yeah, fall in the organization or chart, like who they are. You stop but, giving Ray a hard time. <laughs> he makes I'll, me feel bad because he's very thorough. I'll, I'll figure it out. But uh, so they do have a CSI lab and and they're really, I think maybe in, in Texas, one of the few entities that does have CSI shit. I mean, and it was interesting. I think I don't well, somewhere in my notes here, I have at, at the outset of the book, the author kind of reminds you that like, and it comes up more later, but she takes efforts to remind us that in 1991, CSI is not a show like DNA. Right. We're just starting to understand it. You know what I mean? Like this stuff was very cutting edge. And at least he had the wherewithal to say this shit could be relevant, uh, could be, you know, very important. And it's beyond my expertise. I need to call in the, the pros. And so DPS, um, assist and although they were a new lab with pretty inexperienced folks it was better than nothing yeah so they send a criminalist 
trained in DNA collection, a woman who is the head of DNA operations at the Department of Public Safety, a woman by the name of Irma Rios. And I'm showing my hand. She's a disaster. Irma? Yes. She said uh, she would testify later that she had worked, quote, maybe one other arson homicide before and was aware that the Department of Public Safety had a manual or a handbook, something like that, for DNA collection in fire cases. Oh, it's never good when you start with that. But I'm she aware. didn't. She like only like sort of read it. Like, I mean, I knew it exists and I might have skimmed it, but like, I didn't really know it. She like stand in the middle of all this fire damage with her feet wet, just opening the manual, looking through yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. Probably shit, you know. <clears throat> Hold on. Dripping there's, off the ceiling. There's something in here for this. She's like, damn it, I was reading that word. And then a big ass droplet just right hit it right from the ceiling. Mm. But yeah, so she's up on, she shows up on scene approximately two, two hours after Jones calls. Um, What's her name? Shirley? Irma Rios. Irma. There. Shirley <laughs> Irma. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> she shows up on scene Irma. a couple hours later and she is given the role. Irma Gerd. <laughs> yeah, seriously, Irma Gerd. This woman is horrendous. And I I mean, I don't know. I, I, I Sweet old girl. Some of it I just can't forgive. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. But she, um, I don't know whether it was just sort of like part of pre-established policy or if it was, again, a sort of... Uh, a, an election on division of labor, but she's given the role of being the evidence custodian for all of the physical evidence that's recovered on scene. But check this. Cheryl's looking troubled already. Oh, this this is this is why I said described she, her as a disaster. And it's like she's in charge of all the all physical the evidence. Oh, I don't like I love, that. When Ray lifts up his notes, I yeah. still see those squid drawings on this the back. This <laughs> right? Squid neck. Squid neck. But uh, ain't nobody gonna believe them as squids, but they are. Yeah. So you know, mind you, this this happens now. Ten minutes. Well, the first call comes out ten minutes to midnight on Friday. Yeah. Sometime over that weekend, I don't know if it's Saturday or Sunday, but sometime over that ensuing weekend, the uh, fire insurance investigators for the Hillside Shopping Center roll up, and they start photo documenting everything. They take pics, and they take photographs of these melted shelves. The, so law enforcement has cleared this scene and has opened it to access to other people? I guess to these investigators for for the purposes of their insurance documentation. That part, how they actually get in there and are dicking around is unclear. But I say it seems a little quick to just be like, all right, anybody else want to walk through here? Right. Feel free. Right. Well, see, and I, well, I, jumping ahead, the girls are... Um, the autopsy is conducted in the morning into the early afternoon on the 7th and Jones and I think Huckabee also go to the autopsy. And I assume, and this happens, like I said, it's, it's Saturday morning into the afternoon. So I assume he's like, all right, I'm gonna go to the autopsy. Cause that's what homicide police do. Yeah. You're the crime scene lady. You got this right. Oh yeah, squad. We fam. <laughs> and I'm gonna hold it's it pretty, down for you. And he's like, man. bet. And then he leaves, and then it's just <sighs> so the investigators show up uh, later that weekend, and I'm I can only assume that at this point, and we'll get into this a little bit in, in a little bit, but I can only assume that Jones is talking to family. He's trying to run down leads. He is of the opinion that as far as the scene is concerned, the processing 
has been done. The physical evidence is in the custody of uh, custody the of the custody, the custody, the custodian, the D, the DPS custodian. Right. Everything's good. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start hitting the streets and try to work leads and solve this thing. Well, and from what you've said thus far, can't blame my man for delegate. You know, put, putting this out of. Hey, DPS, you got the crime scene. You've got that. All right, I'm going to start beating feet over here. You've got a crime lab and stuff. Right. You've got a whole division for this. I would think that that would be a pretty reasonable thing to do to say, y'all got this. Right. Mm. To trust your your investigators. Seems that the trust was misplaced. It would would seem that way because when these hillside uh, shopping center fire insurance guys show up within the next 48 hours or so, sometime within that time frame, the shelves, the ladder with the metal rungs, the charred broom handle and mop bucket they photo document as being outside of the store in the alley behind the store wrapped up in crime tape but still just chilling out of the elements behind the store and this part to this day 30 years later remains a mystery um but all those items vanish what don't so they were they were after those photos were taken somehow they were all lost they're just gone and rios apparently never took ownership never explained what happened never said that the i mean they're really like i don't know if she's just declined any sort of official uh comment but there's no accusation that the boogeyman showed up and stole it like there's no explanation what happened to some of the most pertinent physical surrounding objects in that room. They just, they were, I guess, processed to some degree. And we'll get to that in a second, how well they were processed on mm-hmm. scene. But then they're, I guess, I don't know. They're for whatever reason, maybe to be put in some sort of evidence locker or whatever. They're taken they're outside in and alley. left in a freaking alley. Right. And then they just vamoose. They're gone. Mike Jones has got to be pissed right off. They, there was one item that I guess there was a melted uh, like wall phone. You know, this is back in the day. I you guys, I have no idea what that poor man's name actually is. John Jones. <laughs> okay. JJ. <laughs> JJ. Just call him Sergeant Jones. I don't Jones. know what anyone's real name is. Sorry, we just Sarge call him by Jones. our nicknames. Mike Jones. Oh, you talking about the phone? Yes. Okay. So the phone, uh, there was a phone, like a corded phone. This is back in the 90s. It was on the wall and it was... Uh, also, melted. Also, very, very, very melted. I mean, you got to figure that's a plastic phone that's melted. Right. The, the steel shelves melted. And that thing also vanished until sometime well thereafter. It was found at an Austin Fire Department training facility. What? Firefighters stole this shit. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they did. But that's where they found the, the phone. You know, I like well, they were I'm just gonna walking through shut. going, look at all this cool melted shit. We can show people what fire does to things. Yeah, right. That fire's destructive. Yeah. I don't. And there was also on the rear door, the one that uh, you know, Garza and them tried to open more to let it vent out or whatever. Yeah. Uh there was a lock, right? Mm-hmm. And um I think investigators, or at least Jones and and Huck thought that, well, okay, this lock might be of evidentiary value. We're assuming that the perpetrators came in through the front door, but maybe they came maybe in through not. the back door. Mm-hmm. And so there might be tool marks on on the back door, uh, on the lock. There might be, who knows what evidence on this lock. Guess what happens to that? It gets removed and it gets lost. 
They take it out. Because this is not a shoplifting case. Like, this is a big case. How are you losing all this evidence? <sighs> yeah, somebody takes it out. And and I it's guess, bad that, what that do you he's mean, delegated. Takes it, who takes I mean, it out? Well, so... That's they, not documented? They said that the... I assume that it was Rios and company who removed it. And then there was a, there was a record of a bill for a replacement lock charged to APD homicide. And somebody reinstalled installed the the uh, the replacement lock, I guess, to maintain the integrity of the store or whatever. Now that there's why, no why try lock. now, yeah, right, right. Now that um, we moved all the evidence outside, I don't know why we're worried about locking it. Right. Well, and that lock, the 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 original lock that was in there that might have had evidentiary value, that gets lost too. So I have to assume that Rios was involved, um, based on everything else. And Surely. So then, Ger another Ermagerd. He's scared if you're nasty. <laughs> and so uh, DPS also sends, they send a fingerprint expert. I'll put that shit in air quotes by the oh, name no. of Rachel Riffle. Um, cool name, though. I believe Riffle's correct, but who Riffel. cares? She sucks. Oh, the, no. Um, I mean, I, for people who maybe aren't as familiar, it was referenced in the book and it's true. I mean, I think people, especially because of CSI, they're like, oh, well, you can just lift fingerprints off anything. No, there are no, never fingerprints on anything ever, 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 especially in fire cases. When oh, you've God, got, yeah. You've everything's got, melted and there's melted, flame in the burnt, water. You've got the water. Yeah, just, you're not going to get latents. No. But this dummy. <laughs> showing, she, his, showing his hand here. She is the fingerprint bit. expert from DPS. Um and she viewed her job as being one in which if with the naked eye, she could see a latent print, she would lift it. If she couldn't see one with her eye, I mean, why, why would I, why would I dust? What? Yeah. You, you <sighs> dust to see the latent. Because most people ain't got stuff on their hands other than the oil. That leaves the print. Right. So if, if you don't have enough crud and the oil on your fingers to leave some deposit that she could see with her eyes, she ain't dusting it. <laughs> her time is precious. Okay. Her time is valuable. Apparently more valuable than the lives of four young girls. <laughs> yeah. And... DPS needs to get their shit together. I'm right? telling you. Back in 91, they were struggling. Mike Jones is like, I mean, John Jones is, is like, <laughs> my man is like, I need help. I'm bringing the pros. And they got like, the crime lab and everything. Right, here are the, the, the inept dummies we're going to send who are actually going to probably in some respect, well, at least in the case of Irma Rios, make your case way worse. The, the likelihood of solving it, we're going to reduce drastically with these pros. Um, all right. So um, prior to the arrival of these DPS clowns. Um, Jones is, and, and now this is while he's he's flying solo. I don't think uh, Huckabee's there yet. He is processing the scene by taking as many photographs as he possibly can. And now mind you, I mean, like just to kind of put in context, uh, you know, reiterate the, the time we're in here. Yeah. A man's is snapping Polaroids. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It ain't like today. He wasn't even doing the little clicky jump where you, you know, with the old disposables where you can get 
12 developed or whatever. One at a time. Yeah. Then we gotta shake it out. Yeah. Yep. Like that's what we Shake we're, it like a Polaroid picture. Oh my fiance in loose loose. That's that's what we're talking Get about. Get on here. the floor. Um best line, best line of that song. Yeah. You know what to do. <laughs> and then <laughs> let me some sugar. I am your neighbor. Ow. <laughs> All right. Uh, I I'll digress. Yeah. Shout out. <laughs> Shout out. Shout out. That's Big right. Mm-hmm. Dungeon family. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he's he's taking Polaroids and he is doing this alongside an uh, Austin Fire Department investigator by the name of Melvin Stahl. He's also there documenting the scene, but you know, he's looking, I guess, taking pictures of fire. Um, whereas he's where and fire damage, whereas I mean, because there was there was there was a line in the book about where Jones said, I was trying to solve a homicide. Dude was trying to look at fire. I mean, yeah. I don't think he was talking smack. I, mean, I just think he was saying they were looking at different separate. priorities. Yes. Yeah. Um, that they're both looking for the same dude. Anyway, but yeah. Yeah. Um, He's looking for I'm a dude here. who killed the girls. He's looking for the dude who started the fire. He ain't messing right. with misdemeanor pops. <laughs> <All right>. That's right. <laughs> um, and so Stahl, he's actually a pretty, I guess, a pretty expedient dude because the next day, or really, I guess that day, you know what I mean? Because it started, he, I don't even know if Jones technically made it there on Sept, uh, on December 6th. He might have been there in the very early morning hours of the 7th. But on the 7th, uh, Stahl issues a report that estimates the fire started at approximately 11.42 p.m. It's awfully specific. Right? Mm-hmm along the wall in the storage room and that as a reminder would have been 39 minutes after the last uh no transaction transaction on the on the register based on the scene he also concludes that the fire was set high it most likely traveled across the ceiling and back down and it was in the neighborhood of slightly north of 1200 degrees fahrenheit um he Ooh. noted lots of blood on the floor which you know did he, he note an accelerant well so he he noted a lot of blood on the floor which to him indicated that these girls had been shot and you know at least afforded the opportunity to bleed before the fire was started um and curiously to answer your question my next bullet point was going to be that i think Austin Fire Department, Austin Police Department, and at some point, the ATF show up, and they all agree that there is no scent of accelerant, so they just don't swab for it. What? Yeah. <clears throat> what, what, couldn't you, I mean, my Are understanding- Are they trying to solve this case? I don't know. It seems like if there was a way, and at least, I, I won't say this of Jones- or Huckabee, but all the surrounding characters, and I mean, Jones and them too, because this is their scene, this is their case, but it seems like there were so many balls dropped at the outset of the case in the very early stages of the investigation that there's a real possibility just because of those early missteps, it'll never be solved. I mean, you can't just, okay, we ain't even going to swap it. Swap it anyway. Right. What's the harm? Why not? How hard is it to just... And can you not articulate... I mean, I know, and I know some people feel a certain way about fire science right mm-hmm. i mean some people yeah. and and i get that Junk look, science look, if and you're whatever. if you're skeptical that's cool but i'm pretty certain that that a lot of folks at least nowadays can say hey i can look at a burn and there are clues and cues to indicate whether this 
you know, whether there was an accelerant used, like the patterns, you know, if, they, if the fire burns in a certain pattern, often it's indicative of an accelerant being used, aside from just, you know, cutting carpet swaths and sending it to the lab right. to test for um, for that kind of stuff. So uh, was there any mention of, of that or just, eh, it didn't smell like gas, so we, eh. At least in what I've researched thus far, the conclusion, the sort of collective judgment of the various, you know, departments represented on scene it ain't smell like it so why <clears throat> i mean what you gonna you gonna but walk up to a refrigerator with a looked. lighter see see how that works walk up to a refrigerator and stick a lighter on it and see how long it takes to catch fire without throwing gasoline on it yeah i i don't, I, I, I don't either i don't understand i mean I, I i'm far from a fire expert i don't know hardly anything about it but it seems to me that you're probably not going to get something in a sterile environment, you know, steel and so forth. You're not going to get a, a steel shelf yeah. melting there to be something on without the shelf. something yeah. right to get it to burn. And if that, that thing is a tub of frozen yogurt, it's yeah. also not going to catch fire, right? Because it's a tub of frozen yogurt. Yeah, I mean, 1,200 degrees. This mm -hmm. fire is burning, according to him, and they're like, eh, I mean, maybe there was an accelerant, but we're not going to swab to confirm. And I, I don't know to the extent to which uh, in, in paying homage to these young ladies, I, I know you've already described their ages and their names and such. Oh, but I'm like, going to get to them to, in a minute. Right. Yeah, some were employees, I figure, probably not the 13 year old, uh, you know, and or whatever. And yeah. OK. Yeah. I, we'll get I, I wanted to. So a lot of people and that was one of the things I was discussing, I guess we'll go on a brief tangent. Uh, a lot of people, when they tell this story, they start with who the girls were. That's everybody starts that way. And I thought it would be a more interesting, more sort of prosecutorial take on it to say, let's tell from the story sort of from the lens of law enforcement, yeah. what happened. And we'll get to when they learn who they are, who they are. Cool. But um, <clears throat> I so, like it. So no swabs for accelerants. Um also, while they're waiting for DPS to show up, Jones and Stahl uh, from, as I said, from Austin Fire Department, they're talking and Jones is like, bruh, we need help. We need, I mean, I get that like DPS is the thing and whatever, and they're cool and they're going to help us, but we need the feds. Um, I was wondering if the, you mentioned that ATF was it. Yeah. He says, bro, we need the feds. He's like, we need the well and i guess stall's like bro are you sure you want to sound the 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 alarm right and and bring the feds in right now already you don't think that's going to ruffle some local feathers and he's like dude i get it but cost benefit i'm i i worked a arson homicide in an apartment complex some time ago in my homicide career with a dude from atf by the name of chuck meyer we're tight he's he's good shit yeah. we should bring him in the fold and he said you know like look if we get the feds involved we can we can eat more easily if it gets down to it get up on wiretaps uh we've got we know i guess he there was, are advantages i mean oh, the yeah. resources available are he was superior there was a a specific mention of what is known as vicap it's a, i guess a database maintained by the fbi it's the violent criminal apprehension program and basically it's a source a, a massive federal database database through which you can sort of input particular characteristics of your crime and see if somebody else had something pop anywhere else in the country and you know sort of through establishing those commonalities home in on a on a potential suspect and he was like, if we don't have the the FBI involved, it ain't happening. Right. Um, he was like, also, you know, we could probably get behavioral analysis from the FBI at Quantico 
And so, yeah, I might piss off some superiors here in a, uh, APD, but to hell with it. Mm -hmm. I'm calling them. And I think actually his lieutenant did bless it at the outset. Um, so. And you play to win the game. Right, right. right. You, you got a you got a big situation. You know it's going to be rough. Use and that was the thing. I mean, got. a lot of people, it seemed, you know, Jones gets a bad rap in a lot of this. And I think, like I said, a lot of people saw him. And I think he was probably justified that people said he had a big ego. But at least in this case, he realized he was outgunned. And he was like, we are going to bring in the, the heavy artillery. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I thought that was commendable of him to to let his ego get out of the way and be like, let's bring in every, the whole host of investigative tools at our disposal. Well, and you mentioned that and people might people might understand that. But to the extent that they don't, oftentimes, if you let the feds in, it's not just, hey, let us use this or that. I mean, oftentimes you kind of the the exchange is you lose a little bit of the control of the investigation <clears throat> sometimes right. when they can come in. So to do that as an investigator it, can, it, it it's a sign of of humility a little you know what i mean you're not right. yes you, you can't be a super big ego guy and then be willing to to do that so and so then we get into yet more issues with the way the scene was handled um i don't know again if this falls on um jones or if this is more irma rios but um, as I indicated, you know, at the outset, there were estimates of 50 folks or, or so on scene. And when DPS shows up and, and I'm sure more APD and maybe even more AFD, they're all showing up at ATF. Um, there's a lot of people here and the scene integrity was atrocious. There was no log of who was there, who actually, you know, went in inside the tape, um, no booties, you know, were worn mm-hmm. to to eliminate the introduction of foreign contaminants mm-hmm. or the removal of pertinent evidence from the scene outside of the crime scene on people's shoes and shit. Booty free zone. Right. Um, the trash that, you know, might have theoretically given the early, you know, even before they had the autopsy and the ME was able to find the abrasions to, I think it was Sarah's vagina there's this scoop right in between her legs and i mean jones was like i can't say how it got there i don't know i'm not just going to jump to conclusions but you could at least think that perhaps maybe it was used on her well it's not a far stretch all the girls are naked you're assuming there's some form of sex assault that's happened you've got an object well and and maybe you've got some customer who is intelligent enough to wear a condom do they check the trash? Do they do they seize and go through the trash? No. Um, did they did they collect the scoop at least to test for prints? That was never discussed in what I saw, but I'm gonna guess the answer is no because Homegirl never saw prints on it. Oh, that's right. Because if she didn't see it, she ain't testing. Mean, and then it got Irma, put on the she got put on it got put on the shelf. Prints or not, Irma should collect it as evidence. Well, and if she had, she'd have lost it. She put it on the shelf. She had in the alley. And then, you know, right. They came, they 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 might've just left it there and been like, ah, this isn't relevant. Or they might've taken it and she lost it. Um, but, and also this is jumping. Well, we'll, we'll get into that later, but also the bathroom, uh, which will be of, of, this will be of particular importance later. The bathroom was never dusted for prints either. Um, 
And you mean the place where a suspect might reasonably go if he's raped and killed all of the other people who are in the shop. And he has blood shop, on him and doesn't want to have blood, blood on him, seen on him. And he hasn't started the fire yet and he's going to go somewhere to maybe clean up a smidge before right. he... So he doesn't walk out with blood, blood all over him? <clears throat> that that bathroom? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, correct. Oh, that place. Okay. They, they did not... Uh, Great. Whatever that woman's riffle, she decided, well, I don't see any latents with my eye. Um, so, no. And um, then compounding jones and company's problems Did, uh, the were, answer to this is already no but they didn't like luminol the sink or anything in the bathroom not i never saw any reference to luminol at all just i, I just want to double check this but to be clear the term latent yeah right. means you not yet seen see it. yes okay, exactly okay. Yeah, i just I, I wanted to make before i made that i wanted to google it real that quick you can see our patent prints are they not yes i think yeah, you're right about that and latents are the ones you can't see and and that might have been a terminology you know flaw yeah on the part of the off author but yeah her her characterization was if old girl couldn't see visible prints i guess technically patents right she wouldn't lift in any which is just is the lazy dumbest thing it's I've saying ever. i'm lazy it's dumb yeah it's very dumb like it's 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 lazy but it's like borderline you know in this line of work it's i feel like it ought to be criminal negligence you know mm -hmm. what i mean like dumb. i am not going to print the most likely places i'm not going to uh, dust the most likely places where the might be prints deposited handles. because i can't see them i are you an idiot like i, I get that it's 1991 but we're not talking about cutting edge dna fingerprints it's fingerprints that's prints your have been job. a thing for a long time very long time dna was in its nascent stages in the early 90s but prints not so much and this dummy was just like mm, no not gonna do it um so but in her defense, she couldn't see them. Right, right, right. Well, how's she supposed to print them? If she, how's she supposed to dust? That's why you put see? the. That's why you put the powder on them. Then you can see them. It's like magic. It's wild. Um, Satan science. And so then the problems just get worse. Um, the medical examiner compounds Jones's problems. Um, the rule back then was that. The bodies on homicides were the medical examiners. That, that you, when the medical examiner shows this is up mine and says, now. I want that body, that's his body, he takes it. The actually, the, the Austin Police Department, there was a little bit of a uh, hostility between the two entities. Actually, Austin PD called the ME's office the body snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> and Good on them. Uh, on you know, the evening of December 6th into the morning of December 7th, the chief medical examiner, Roberto Bayardo, he's out of town. So his number two, Deputy Chief Les Myers, who by all accounts was an epic dick, um, who he was just, he was a known stickler for procedure. This is my body. You're giving it to me now. He responds to the scene and says, I'm the man in charge here because, you know, the chief is gone. And he says, I'm taking these bodies immediately. So and, he didn't give him a chance to photograph them or... Well, Jones and company for a while tell him to fuck himself. This is our scene. We are processing these bodies here. We there's we'll already release them to you when, when we're, we're done. good and ready. Right. Yeah. We're we want to make sure that they're again, I mean, it's weird. They took certain painstaking efforts to avoid 
sort of cross-contamination and then other sort of elementary steps to avoid that they just didn't take. So their rationale apparently for why, and maybe this was, like I said, this is the difference between Jones being on scene and being able to assert, you know, logic and, and rationality to the scene and then him being elsewhere with families and autopsies and so forth. And it's left to Rios. But uh, he says, you know, for one, I'm concerned that when we move these bodies, we might um, lose particular trace evidence. When Makes you sense. guys put the sheets on them, put them in bags, take them from here to there, you guys might introduce contamination. Like we just, we want to do it here. And when we're ready, you can have them. And apparently this Sounds dude- Sounds incredibly reasonable. Right. And apparently this dude threw an epic bitch fit. Um, and- but thankfully, he he relented, I assume. I don't know. There might have been threats of arrest. I have no idea. Maybe, maybe. I was going to say, he's not armed. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe they drew down on him and were like, you're going to go back in your car. I don't know. Sit uh, down, doc. Yeah. But uh, so finally, he goes, okay, fine. And jumping ahead a little bit, at around about 7 o'clock in the morning, he does take the bodies. Mm. But um, during their processing of the scene, they are officers are able to locate a spent 380 casing in a drain that was they presumed washed there by the water fire department hoses. Mm -hmm. um, they're also able somehow to locate a number for the ICBY manager, a woman by the name of Reese Price. They call her to come to the shop and provide just, I guess, general information, help identify the bodies, anything. Um, when asked if any of the girls are her employees, uh, she's taking, you know, into the back room to go look at them. And she says she later testified, I couldn't identify them. They didn't have faces. What the, you can't identify them by their clothes. They're naked. And to the extent they would have been wearing clothes, they're all burnt up. And that, I don't understand the point. Why of that. would they put that poor woman? I know that's just bodies when they can see whether or not they have faces. <sighs> Well, I, I don't know. I at this point, you got to figure they got four bodies. They got no identification. They got nothing. Right. And hey, like, is there hey, anything? You're the Just body type. I assume they work for you. Well, yeah. You how about them? who was on the schedule right. tonight, Tina? To be here last. Who was well, closing? and when I guess, yeah, maybe they should have done that first. But apparently, they marched her in and asked her, "Do you recognize them?" She said, "No, they don't have any faces." And then they were like, "Oh, okay. Well, why don't you check the uh, employee roles and the schedule?" And she goes, "Okay, I will." And then she figures that um, Eliza. Thomas and Jennifer Harbison, the two 17 year olds were working that night. Um, but still, you know, whether that was them, I mean, cause right. You don't know. They, right. They, so really they were still guessing they were, at least, they could have been abducted in those right, people. Who, who knows? Nice. Yeah. Um, they were able to confirm that Eliza started her shift that night at seven and Jennifer at eight. Um, I think they were able to further, you know, deduce that probably Eliza was one of the girls because um, per Bryce protocol, basically, I guess there were somewhere in the store some keys and the, the employees were supposed to go in. They were supposed to take their personal effects uh, or they're supposed to grab the keys, take their personal effects, go to the manager's office in the back, unlock the door, put their personal shit in it, lock the door back and then go about their shift. Um, and they, when they arrived, the door was locked. Eliza's stuff was in it. So they presumed entry was never made into that room. Into the manager's office thing. Okay. Um, 
And then she gives them the stuff about the, uh, you know, we close at 11, 1050 lights go off, at least to the outside world. Um, money from the register is supposed to go into a safe in the floor in the office, um, which is presumably because the door was locked. I mean, they never, never made it, never got to it. This safe. They're supposed to clean the store, flip the chairs, unlock the door from the inside, exit, lock the door from the outside, slide the door under and bounce. That was the protocol. Slide the what under? Uh, sorry, the key. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, as I said, when AFD shows up, the, the key is still on the inside. In, in the lock on the inside. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, presumably they'd started the close up process around and, about 1050 and then something inside. But, but as, I was going to say, but as described, even if you have customers inside, you, you start like that it. and then you're supposed to unlock to let them out. I mean, seems to me like maybe one of those folks <clears throat> who came 1030 and thereafter who's hanging out in the yogurt shop while they do that procedure is probably involved in this, right? Could could have been. I mean, sure smells that way. Um, sure they had CCTV, I mean, right? Oh, no, 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 no surveillance, no surveillance in the parking lot, no surveillance in adjacent stores, no surveillance in the ICBY. There were no cameras anywhere. And uh, I presume these girls are 17, but are they driving to work? Are there cars in the parking lot? Well, so that was the next step they take. They see that, um, you know, they get as much as they can from Reese Price about the protocols, the closing procedures and so forth. Then they notice in the parking lot, there are two whole vehicles, privately owned vehicles. One is a blue Chevy S10 pickup. And the other one is a, I'd never heard of this car. I looked it up. I thought it's actually, it's pretty badass. If I were this girl at 17, I'd be like, man, that's a dope ride. I got 1971 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. The Carmen Ghia, my man. Yeah, it's a cute little ride. <clears throat> beep, beep. Um, and so they they go into the car. I mean, for a girl. Right. Oh, yeah. It's a girl car. It's a little 100%. little coupe. It looks almost. I don't. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a movie that has a similar car. Mm. You know, but definitely a, a little a little sporty coupe thing. That yeah. Uh, it was also it was uh it was green, and I believe she really enjoyed the fact that it was green because her uh, Eliza's birthstone emerald. was emerald. Yes. Mm. Um. Mine too. Oh. <laughs> hey. Mine is uh, stomach bile green, mm. Peridot. Mm. <laughs> uh, stomach bile green. <laughs> so, Mine's ruby. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. My uh, my uh, high school ringstone, though, I got green because I knew I was going to Marshall. <laughs> um, <laughs> mine's actually green too, but that was because it's uh, it was a school color. Um, oh, there you go. So yeah, they they find these two cars. They they you know Jimmy them or whatever. They go in and they find registration and other identifying information in the cars. They learned that the um, S10 was registered to, I can't remember his name, but I'm just going to call him Papa Harbison. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eliza was the was on the registration for the, the Volkswagen. And I think her dad might have been as well. I don't really remember. But regardless, they're starting to make hay on, okay, this is two, who Two we of the got. four. Yeah. yeah. So then they go to the addresses on the registration. They, they make- got boyfriends? They do, and that comes up later. Okay. Uh, well, at least one of them does. Mm-hmm. Um, they go to the addresses addresses on the registrations. They make notifications. And I can't remember which one of them it was, but one of the parents, one of the mothers, is asked if she knew the whereabouts of her daughter or daughters. Mm-hmm. And she was like, they're in bed. 
Like, I mean, she didn't know that. I guess she fell right. asleep and it was just as a matter of course. They work, they come home, they, they go to sleep. Right. Yeah, they they're in bed. And they're like, oh, we got news for you, lady. Um, oh. Ah. So they also, now we're starting to figure out what happened before the shift and, and just what's going on. And officers learned that Jennifer had this new S10 and the one of the stipulations was that she had to make payments, help make payments on the car, which is part of the reason why she had the job mm -hmm. at the ICBY. And one of the other stipulations was that she had to shuttle her younger sister around, um, Sarah around basically as necessary. You're, we're going to give you this car, but you're going to help with chauffeuring duties. So it takes the load off us. Sure. That makes sense. Um, and on December 6th, the plan was Jennifer was going to take Sarah to Amy's. Uh, Amy's the 13 year old. She would take the two younger girls then around the way from the ICBY. It's not far or wasn't far at the time to the North Cross Mall. And then at eight o'clock, she would start her shift at, at ICBY. Then at around nine or so, she would take a brief, you know, 15 minute break or whatever. She'd go to the mall, pick them up, bring them back to the store, and they would chill until they went back to uh, Sarah and Jennifer's for the night where Amy and Sarah were going to have a sleepover. So everyone was just under the impression, and apparently that isn't what killed them, that the 13 year old girls could be by themselves in a mall for a couple hours or Thir for an hour. 15 year old I mean, and 13 or 13, yeah, 15. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, but still, yeah, okay. they were, they were like, yeah, they, and, and, and they did say, uh, they learned as an unfortunate coincidence that this was the first time that Amy in particular, the youngest of the, of the four was permitted to go to the mall unaccompanied mm. and had well, but she's she, with a 15 year old, I guess that's close. Right. But without parental right. supervision and, you know, had parents been with her, they probably would have gone home and she would still be alive. Sure. But again, like you said, nothing nothing that occurred in the mall precipitated her death. But I don't know. If, if you go in, I'm sorry, I'm derailing this. But if you go in and you're going to, you're like, ah, look at that gal at the ice cream shop. I'm going to, I'm going to get me that. I'm going to rape and kill this lady. I'm like you pick the time when there's three other People, you know, like if one person is the target, but you've got three collaterals, that just, I don't, that all just seems weird. It, yeah. The, well, I mean, there, you got two different firearms. You got a 22. Yeah. I, I just. And I assume because you didn't mention any 22 shells, 22 is a revolver because it's not ejecting shells. And the 380 was necessary for the one because the, the 22 shot wasn't fatal and he probably ran out. I didn't count, but it's probably a six shot on the 22 revolver. And then he had to pull out the 380 semi-auto and that leaves the shell case. Yeah. I think I, I don't, my memory is, I don't think they've recovered. The only shell casing was the 380. Yeah. The, and if you're controlling four people, I don't, I think there's more than one, one person. person. Right. Right. And the other thing that's weird too, is you're going to commit this quadruple homicide, probably, you know, uh, at least a rape in mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if as what, a, is robbery the motive for right, that 500? That's the 500 bucks. That's why they had to die. Or did you say, well, they're dead. I might as well cash into the best of my ability. Now. I would think that more. You yes. know what I mean? It, like, you like, don't like I'm here because you want to steal. Well, right. but you yeah. also figure that like, well, you have to think that in the progression of what occurred, the money happened first. 
Yeah, 1103. At 11.03. And how did he get into the register? I mean, I guess maybe he could figure out he um, or, or they, they could figure right. out the know how to open the register. But I would assume that I, you know, you're making the girls open up the register, give me that money, and then you do what you do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, which would which would make me think that the money would that maybe the robbery would be the motive. That's the first thing you do. Right. But then, you know, OK, I'm going to I'm going to kill four humans because, you know, it didn't happen before the door bucks. got locked. Right. I mean, it didn't happen before the door got the door would have been locked at 10 till. Right. Right. Yeah. And he wasn't he didn't like I don't And we'll get you know. into the chronology of what and I know there's what patrons saw yeah. and timing and so forth. But like I said, I'm trying to kind of tell it through the lens of law enforcement and what they know when. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, we'll certainly get into that in, in another episode. But so while they're making the notifications, they speak with Eliza Thomas's mom, who advised that Eliza, Eliza's mom stopped in the shop herself at 930 and saw Ugh. Sarah and Amy eating a pizza and Jennifer and Eliza were just working the shift. Everything was cool. Um, and then even after Eliza's mom left, just by happenstance, or maybe it was coordinated, I don't know. Eliza's dad and um, Eliza's stepmom show up. Same thing. Saw the, uh, well, dad says, I saw the two girls eating pizza, but I didn't know Amy or the Harbison girls. I mean, I, I saw these girls sitting there eating pizza, but I didn't, but know I them. knew my daughter. Right. Right. But nothing was sketching me out. Everything's cool, you know? Anybody else in the store or just these kids? Well, we'll get into that. All right. Um, So basically they say, you know, did you see anything amiss? And they go, no. And so family who were present, you know, but minutes before their children were murdered, saw nothing amiss and therefore could provide nothing of value really to investigators. And, you know, in speaking with them about who these girls were, they there were no beefs with anybody. They weren't into trouble. The popular term, the kind of refrain that you heard in media reporting uh, and, and in interviews with the family and everybody who knew them was they were, quote, good girls. Right. And so this is when, you know, upon making contact with the family, now we're starting to get in as as investigators, we're starting to get some insight into who these girls were. And as I said, Amy Ayers was 13. She was an eighth grader at Burnett Middle School. She was the vice president of her uh, of the FFA, despite being Future Farmers of America. That's right. And through FFA, that's how she met and befriended her best friend, Sarah Harbison, mm-hmm. and thereby Jennifer Harbison. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amy was huge into riding horses, was all about the rodeo. She wanted to become a veterinarian. She loved country music and, you know, props to her, was obsessed with George Strait. Mm. Wore a cowboy hat to school, was just straight country. Nice. Um, And as I said, she was supposed to sleep over at Sarah Harbison's that night after they went to the mall and it was going to be the first time and it did not happen. Um, Eliza Thomas was 17. She was a senior at Lanier High School, characterized as popular, friendly, she was also into FFA and was nominated for Queen. She said she wanted to go to Texas A&M and become a vet. Uh, as part of, uh, I guess as part of FFA, you have to, at least when you're in the high school 
bit of it, you have to do some kind of animal related project. And she was raising a pig named Stormy that was, I think it was 264 pounds, 54, over 250 pounds. Hoss. Um, that she was raising and apparently something to do with had to give it injections twice a day. I don't know. Um, her mother Hormones. said, right. Her mother said she had a gift for language. Mom had aspirations that Eliza was going to be a writer or a poet. Uh, Eliza was also mechanically inclined. She was kind of a gearhead. Her pride and joy was her car. And uh, as part of loving her car. Did so Eliza have the Carmen Gia? Yes. Yeah. She was the one with the car. And she. I mean, it's a 71 and it's 91. So it's an antique. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's 20 years old. And it's pretty cool if I'm, in a, high, if I'm a high school girl. That car yeah. is bad. Yeah. Um, and she did, like I said, she's a gearhead, did all the maintenance on her car. Yeah, she did. Uh, and actually that year, you know, this is December 6th. So we're just a few weeks shy of Christmas that year for Christmas. She was asking for exclusively car parts. Um, she, she sounds awesome, right? Uh, she worked at the ICBY along with, uh, Jennifer and, um, she put most of her money from her job into the car. She enjoyed working at the shop, said it was a cool place to be more or less recruited Jennifer to come work with her. Mm-hmm. Yo, we're squad. We can earn a little change and just kind of kick it. Mm -hmm. I'll um, get my parts for the Volkswagen. <clears throat> you get this job so you can pay the payment on that Chevy S10. Yeah. We'll cruise, you know, yeah. do the damn thing. Yeah. So then Sarah Harbison, she's 15. She is a sophomore at Lanier High School. She's best friends with Amy. Um, She played basketball, volleyball, was at least in middle school, a cheerleader, also in FFA she was raising and showing sheep for her FFA project. She uh, stood at five feet, one inches tall mm -hmm. or one inch tall, I suppose, and weighed 125 pounds. She was a itty bitty thing. No thing. Um, actually, but well, we'll get to Jennifer in a second. Jennifer, the older sister, was even smaller. Um, she wore her boyfriend's class ring, as I indicated, the green uh, or the gold ring with the green stone with the tractor and initials. And Jennifer was a senior at Lanier. She was also very active, outgoing. She was popular and loved country. I guess she was a Garth fan because mm. her favorite song was The Dance. Um, she was said to just bring a lot of joy to other people. She was very good friends with Eliza. As I said, Eliza recruited her to go work there. She ran varsity track, was the president of the Lanier High School FFA chapter, and like Eliza was nominated as queen. Um, and she also raised and showed sheep. I think she and her younger sister, Sarah, kind of did that together. She was five feet tall and weighed 86 pounds. What? Yes. She was Yikes. an itty bitty. Um, so officers now have gleaned this information from the family, and there is not a damn thing in their personal lives that stands out as a red flag. No, uh, no, no suspects off the bat. No, no drug use, no involvement in criminal activity, debts, you know, no violent or crazed exes, yeah. nothing that they would immediately determine might be a possible, a possible motivation, nothing off the bat. And, um, Jones sent an early shorthand memo to the Travis County District Attorney's Office that pretty well, I thought, was a, a succinct uh, summary of the posture of the investigation at the early stages. Robbery plus sexual assault plus multiple victims plus bondage plus gunshot wounds plus fire slash heat slash smoke slash water damage plus no known witnesses 
equals the homicide, arson, and DA's worst nightmare. Sounds accurate. God. And as I mentioned, CBS was on scene as soon as Jones was. They were embedded with him and meet other media outlets in Austin and maybe larger Texas, you know, were uh, there within minutes. And even, you know, you got to remember, this is 1991. People still read the paper. Right. On December 7th, you know, before, not to sound callous, but honestly, in some respects, before the bodies are even cooled, the Austin American Statesman, a, a local publication there in Austin, I don't know, you know, what circulation it has, but they run a story with the basics of what happened and basically get it all wrong. They they at least have the number, the body count right, but then all the other surrounding details, they just dick up. But, you know, first the press, right. you, you got you to gotta do it. Okay, is about the truth. And so from the very beginning, the pressure is on. And like I said, that was 10 pages of single space notes. And we have made it into this happened at <laughs> around about day. midnight on December 6th. And we are now not even into, you know, the end of December 7th. And we got another 30 years to cover. But you can imagine with the amount of coverage that this thing received. I mean, you have to figure that probably in 91, that much immediate coverage was just unprecedented. Yeah. You know, I sure. mean, and, and they talked about it ex extensively how crimes like this in Austin just had not happened and how authorities were overwhelmed. The population at large was terrified, um, you know, for quote unquote good girls, for little innocent girls were murdered in a store and we don't have the slightest clue who did it. So batting down the hatches you know what i mean like yeah. people started to lose their shit yeah and that's day one and we got 30 more years to go 30 years goodness well that makes me want to say hug your kids stay strapped to get clapped mm -hmm. and until next time y'all stay out of trouble Head and body. I don't mm -hmm. know what you call that on a fucking squid. The neck. I guess. I mean, there, there's no real neck there. It's just like a fucking. That's what you call it. We'll I guess. Call yeah, it the squid neck. neck. Yeah, squid, squid neck. neck. And uh, <laughs> right across his jugular. That's right. <laughs> well, well, but so then, Angel's baiting old boy, putting him on the hook, and she's going through the the head, and she got inked on. Oh. I didn't know that's where the ink was. It's up it's in, in the, the dome, dome piece. Yeah. She Why was, do you work? You gonna keep it? Huh? I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was like, like a booty. Was his squirt area? I thought it was, which like is like the, in the midst of all his. Stuff. I figure it would be farther south. Yeah, I mean, it would like be belly a, button, booty hole. This is in the.